We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the fourth episode in the spring series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. WWF is proud to be collaborating with Goodwill Hunters on this series in the lead up to the COP26, the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow from the 31st of October to the 12th of November. The sustainability of our ecosystems, our energy networks, our food systems, and the cities in which we live have never been more important. You can join the conversation via at Goodwill Pod or hashtag Regenerate Australia. In our fourth episode of the series, we speak to Dr. Andrew Forrest, CEO of Fortescue's Metals Group and the chairman and co-founder of the Mindaroo Foundation. You'll hear us talk about how Fortescue has gone in front of government policy to invest in world-leading technological innovations in renewable energy. As Andrew says in the interview, renewable energy isn't about throwing money at something that you'll never see a return. It's about creating a sustainable industry and a large part of that responsibility falls on the shoulders of the world's largest energy companies. For someone who's been involved in the climate movement for more than two decades, whether you agree or not, when Andrew delivers this message, it's prime ministers, industry boards, and financiers that listen and who will need to move quickly on sustainability or face being left behind. We hope you enjoy the episode. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning. We've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Okay, well, Andrew, thanks for joining us on Goodwill Hunters. We'll get straight into it. Fortescue Metals has committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2030, and you've been vocal in calling on other companies to create net zero strategies. 
Can Australia really be a climate leader without the support of major corporates, particularly in the extractive sector? Yeah, look, the the governments actually can't do much. Um, And people who don't emit a lot of carbon um, coming out announcing that they're going green, um, you know, that's great. Maybe a slow hand clap because they're not going to make a lot of difference anyway. It's kind of green rinsing. What we need is the heavy carbon emitters, those people who, whose products, services are relied on by society but are heavy carbon emitters. We need them as society to go green. And, uh, and that's why we should be targeting the heavy carbon emitters um, and, uh, and really rewarding and pushing them for going green. Now, will companies deliberately front-run government policy? Not often. You know, Fortescue is an exception, and we are certainly pushing our colleagues across the heavy carbon emitting industry to join us on this and saying, we're not throwing you to the wolves. We're saying you burn oil and gas and diesel because often you have no choice. What we're trying to do here is give you a choice, give you a replacement so you can choose um, carbon-free throughout the entire supply chain fuels, um, which therefore makes sure that you can stay in business, you can grow your company, but you can reduce and then eliminate your carbon emissions. Now, would that be much easier if there's government policy in place? Certainly. Um, you know, uh, uh, technology over taxes is a really great soundbite, but at the end of the day, um, governments know that it's often, um, let's say, you can use fortune favours the brave or angels fear to tread, one of those two for when uh, governments step right out in front of policy. And we're doing this at Fortescue because we really believe it's the right thing and we need to show our government that there's a measurable impact which they can calculate so the fear of introducing a 2050 target is removed. Right now, what our government uh, discusses with with their public is that they're not sure what it's going to cost and they don't want to write a blank check. Um, What we need to know is, is it going to cost anything net-net? In fact, could it be a cost-saving? If there is a cost, what actually is it? And, uh, and we want to give our government that information. We can only do that if we go in front of government policy. And, and Andrew, sort of building on that, because you've talked about companies having those plans to, to um, address climate change. Now, I mean, a number of commenters have said that carbon offsetting to neutralise your emissions is not going to meet the, the global climate challenge that we have. So I've heard you talk about your ambition in producing iron ore that is really carbon neutral. Can you tell a little bit about your plans into that space? Yeah, look, initially uh, we will be looking at offsets because we simply haven't put the multi-billion dollar investment into place yet. But um, very soon after that, we will not need offsets at all. We're not a advocate of offsets. Um, If you've got absolutely nothing else, then certainly look at them, but make sure they're very sincere because they're, 
they can be unreliable and there are scams in, in the offset industry. Uh, but for Fortescue, we're putting in really concrete plans and that is to uh, create um, very large solar and wind systems, very large green hydrogen production systems to power all our mobile plant, to power all our fixed plant and then to convert into ammonia, most likely to power our trains and our ships. So, you know, it's a very exciting uh, development. It's relying on a number of technical breakthroughs, which we've already seen. Uh, we've, we've started to run our um, haul trucks, these massive trucks with wheels bigger than the room many of us are in, um, you know, and when they start up, you know, we're used to them starting up with a whole heap of noise and a whole heap of smoke. Um, which is, of course, carbon. And what we're seeing is with the, the trucks we've pioneered, you're really seeing uh, and hearing the sound of the future. They start up and they're silent. And uh, when they're even under heavy pressure, all you see from them is zero smoke, occasionally puffs of steam, which is pure water. To stay on the topic of exciting developments for a moment, you announced this week that you'll be setting scope three emissions targets for your customers as well. How do you plan to help your customers to decarbonize? Okay, so there's a number of ways. First, hydrogen. It's the miracle molecule. It's the most abundant in the universe, the most abundant on earth um, and the least used. Um, and, uh, and when you burn it, it converts to pure water. So it's an amazing little molecule. So we intend to produce that entirely green. We know that if we were to uh, purchase a large fossil fuel producer and then crack the gas or the coal or whatever it is to make hydrogen, we're gonna leave behind a much greater carbon footprint than if we just burnt the oil or gas or coal. So we're going about it the slightly longer way but I think the far more rewarding way in the long run, and that is to use pure sustainable energy. So there's no carpet in the supply chain to make the electricity in the first place, to drive uh, water through an electrolyzer, create the hydrogen. And that of course can uh, be used as a replacement for coal in blast furnaces. You can reduce iron ore, strip the oxygen and impurities out of iron ore and leave yourself with pure iron with coal, certainly, but you can also do it with hydrogen. And, uh, and that technology has been worked on around the world now. There is another way, and that is to be able to supply our customers with green iron ore. Now, that's a much bigger breakthrough. You know, they can leave behind 70 or 80% of the carbon emissions, still take the biggest value add from iron ore, add a bit of carbon of all things to it, so it also becomes a carbon sink to make carbon steel um, in their furnaces. Uh, and that becomes really attractive to them. So our job now is to not only produce very abundant qualities of green hydrogen and green ammonia, but also to produce green iron. We have a process of doing that. We've proven we can do it. And we would allow our customers to not just purchase green iron ore from us, but the holy grail, which is uh, green iron. And then if, if they feed that into their system, then they really can slash their carbon emissions.
It is an exciting prospect and and you've mentioned there what a huge innovation green iron ore would be. Um, And you've also mentioned that you're front-running government policies here, but are there particular government policies that would be helpful in getting customers to to be carbon neutral? Yeah, I think that um, all governments should be establishing targets. The Japanese government establishing a target of 45% reduction by 2030 was pretty courageous. Europe and North America have established their own targets. Um, we are, are very clear to our government that the great projects, the great businesses of the world all run on, if you like, ambitions or targets. Australia needs its own target as to when it should be carbon neutral. And then managers and leaders like us in the business sector, which produce all the carbon and if you were to say to us, well, stop, then of course the whole economy would stop and people would starve or not be able to uh, live, and, live and exist. So what we need to do is say, okay, stopping isn't the answer, but having a target in an achievable time frame where we can all move the green fuels and green energies and green iron and eventually green cement, um, that then allows us policy to which we can all work with. And I mean, Andrew, you've you've talked quite a bit about um, green hydrogen or renewable hydrogen, and um, you know it's well publicised. You set up Fortescue's indus- uh, future industries recently with a billion dollars and a and a target to to try and explore five hundred gigawatts of of renewable power across a whole suite of of different sources. Um, and I think you're on record at saying you estimate the world needs 500 gigawatts of, of pure renewable energy to, to slow the climate crisis. Can you give us a, a sense on how uh, future industries is going in terms of getting towards that 500 gigawatt um, target? Because I, I totally agree with you, that target becomes really important in driving innovation and change. Yeah. Dermot, no, I think to, to uh, provide some granularity, um, to slow up and stop um, global warming, the largest um, energy companies in the world, of course, have to be green. It's just simply not going to happen outside of that. If, if the largest energy companies in the world are not green, we are just wasting our time spinning wheels um, and, uh, and just achieving nothing. So what would that look like? What would the five, how big would the five energy companies have to be um, and, you know, if they were totally green, um, what then would that look like to stop global warming? That would probably be about five companies the size of Saudi Aramco, which produce around 900 gigawatts of power, um, all green. And that's what the world must aim for. We'd like FFI to blaze the trail to demonstrate um that this is this is not crazy. It's just brave, and that this is not about throwing uh, money at something which you'll never see a return on. So therefore, it'll be unsustainable, and you'll send your business broke. No, this is about creating a sustainable industry where you can have a return to shareholders, um, and therefore you can grow your industry. And as the world moves away from carbon then the largest energy companies in the world can be all green. And they're the, they're the, that's the, if you like, societal encouragement for the energy sector and for the fossil fuel product sector, 
which we should be driving, Dermot. We should be really encouraging big companies to go green because only if they do will we be able to slow than stop global warming. Um, 100% agree on that, Andrew. So in that, in that context towards how do you get those, com- those energy companies to transition as fast as possible, who, who are you finding to be the most supportive towards that type of goal or vision? You know, you've talk- we've talked a little bit about governments and their roles, um, both federal and state. Um, we've talked a little bit about the private sector. We haven't talked about the capital markets, but also shareholders and, in fact, consumers. Where do, where do you think the, the real levers for accelerated change are coming from your experience? I think there are some good players in the oil and gas sector, um, and they're, they're embracing green hydrogen. Uh, the, the players which are strongly advocating um, hydrogen from a fossil fuel source, I think um, that, that there's certainly not the academic and the practical research which has been done for um, government policy to any way responsibly support um, fossil fuel hydrogen as a net um, zero emitter of carbon, i.e. will it cause more damage through the making of the hydrogen um, than uh, the hydrogen, than the original fossil fuel itself. Generally, um, the world population has every reason to be sceptical that carbon sequestration, which is only one part of the decarbonising of blue hydrogen, it's a big part, they're entirely sceptical that carbon sequestration works because in 19 out of 20 times it's failed. Um, and, you know, in my own home state of Western Australia, we have some of the biggest gas developments in the world who've been granted permission to develop on carbon sequestration and it's failed. And that's quite normal around the world. So to suddenly say, well, carbon sequestration, we're going to wave a wand, it's going to work reliably. Well, you know, that's actually, if you're a realist, a bridge way too far. It's good in a soundbite, but it doesn't work in reality. But that's only the start of it, Dermot. The, what's known as the fugitive emissions, that is all the emissions which are not counted. If you, if you were to accurately account for those, if you'd be happy to have them independently audited by experts, then certainly you should then make the claim that blue hydrogen is a global warming solution. But until you've done that work, the academic analysis says, actually, it's greenwashing. You're much better off just burning the fossil fuel than you, than you are converting it to hydrogen from a carbon perspective. Absolutely. So, look, Andrew, it sort of takes me to um, a question of mindset and leadership here. And, you know, Australia, it's been said, has the chance to be a renewable energy exporting superpower. Um, and you've had a lot of praise for your, your vision. But there must have been a day when the penny dropped in your mind to say, hang on a second, um, I'm, I need to do something radically different. Can you just tell me about that journey and your thoughts on can Australia really be a renewable energy exporting superpower? Uh, look, for 11 years now, um, last year I used to say it was 10, but it's now 11 years, Fortescue's been looking at hydrogen really hard. About four or five years ago, we started to 
negotiate the license. Really fabulous hydrogen technology where we could switch hydrogen to, to ammonia, which is therefore a very efficient carrier of hydrogen, store of hydrogen, which kind of cracks the hydrogen nut for industrial use of hydrogen to be able to store it easily and carry it easily, which green ammonia does. Um, but there was a point during my PhD where I began to understand that um, fish breathe oxygen in a much less efficient way than mammals. Um, their gills are nowhere near as powerful as our own respiratory system with lungs. And that's why, of course, orcas and whales and the like are not sharks, are the, if you like, the apex predator of the sea, the kings of the sea. They breathe air. Um, now, why am I sharing this? Because the much less efficient breathers, which are, which are fish, which rely on gills, they, in our studies, are showing us that they've stopped hunting uh, for food as their primary uh, activity to live, and they've started hunting oxygen to breathe as their primary activity to live. And when you see uh, fish populations moving on ecological scale because of the deoxygenation of the oceans, so the oceans warm, they expel their oxygen, uh, leading to mass migration of species, then you know you're doing very serious, measurable damage to the planet. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, it is scientific fact. Um, and when I started to see uh, the deep impact um, that global warming has on the 99% of the world's livable space, you know, which is the oceans, um, then I thought, okay, enough is enough. We, I must do whatever I can uh, to, to slow then stop global warming. And I'm very lucky. I've been successful in business. I've, you know, had a whole bunch of breaks and uh, created some very large companies. I now want to use those companies to show the rest of industry globally that global warming, addressing global warming with your company can either be seen as a threat or as a serious opportunity. And if we view it as an opportunity, um, then each of us will become uh, much more competitive. In Fortescue's case, we think that renewable energy will become much cheaper than fossil fuel energy. So it becomes a serious opportunity. And of course, at the same time, we eliminate our carbon emissions. And that's where the world must go. The heavy emitters must take the lead. Last year, you did, a, I think, a fairly remarkable journey around the world where you spoke to world leaders, businessmen um, about politics and renewables. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you think the international community, the government, capital markets are so interested in this concept of what Australia and you're trying to do in terms of um, climate and renewable energy ambition? Look, I do think that the global community is moving. Um, for all, the, for all the greenwashing that's going on, for all the advertising and lobbying that is, that is going on to try and slow down the tide of public opinion, it's basically not working. You are, you, you're, you're standing in the middle of a, of a highway hoping not to be hit by a truck. Um, in, in the end, um, it's not the right place to be standing. Um, 
public opinion and more and more as the science becomes so clear um, is moving against uh, organisations and governments who are seeking to deny that global warming is, occur is occurring and wanting to hold to account those companies who they may rely on as a society but continue to heavily emit carbon um, and not put in place short-term pledges to eliminate and greatly reduce that carbon. Long-term pledges for companies are really pretty meaningless. It might be okay for governments, but for companies, you know, chief executives may be operating in four to six year spans of term. And, uh, and you know, they, um, they, if they kick the can down the road to 2040 or 2050, that's really um, a cop-out. You know, all of us need to, to pick up the challenge right now. Absolutely. And, and look, I'd, I'd like to sort of bring this together. We, we've, you've talked about, you know, climate change and the impact on its oceans and, and um, ecosystems. And we've talked about uh, your and the Mindaroo's, you know, um, uh, initiative around fire and floods, um, because we, to, I think you said, we, you know, we're going to be hit harder by these um, climate impacts and we've got to build resilient communities. But um, the world's most vulnerable communities outside Australia are going to be hit harder. And so I was curious to hear, Andrew, how you think we can best support our neighbours in the Pacific and, and Southeast Asia um, who are living in some of the most environmentally vulnerable ecosystems in the world um, and don't have the type of resilience ecosystems that we're developing here in Australia. Um Look, I think we really need to support them. As sea levels rise, it's a direct threat to their community. Um, and you're not going to get any argument from, uh, from people in the Pacific about global warming because they can see what's happening in, in their backyard. The argument tends to come against global warming from people in, in glass skyscrapers, safely sconced in the middle of cities far away from ever having to be impacted by the fact that the ocean may well denude your home and your livelihood and your children's future. So um, I think we need to walk in their shoes. And Australia has been increasing its foreign policy budget um, priority by around 50 million a year. We're at about 1.4, 1.45 billion now. It's Australia's highest ever spend in, in the region. Um, and we need to have a strong regional approach to helping them when they get hit by, by, by disasters. And that work I know is already underway. Um, there's, there's, I think, a serious opportunity to create a regional earth observation capability to predict and monitor disasters from space before they occur. Um, and we really need to make this available to the Pacific nations who could be hit with tidal waves and the like, which are responses, you know, geological um, and atmospheric responses to uh, changes in climate, of course, tectonic shifts, which are in our underlying plate structure, but because the, the sea level is higher, become much more dangerous. Good. And, and Andrew, um, I think finally, um, if over the next couple of decades, Australia does become a 
renewable energy exporting superpower. Um, if we're able to take our sustainability vision to the rest of the world, what do you think from the geopolitics that you're you know, actively involved in, it means that we as a country need to do differently? Dermot, I think that, um, that uh, the policy settings need to be put in place to, to allow a very large green hydrogen industry to take advantage of the massive solar and wind uh, and uh, wave resources which we have, but particularly the obvious ones, which is solar and wind. Um, and to acknowledge that if we want a totally different result, doing it the same way defines, as Einstein said, insanity. Um, and uh, so we need the policy settings to really allow the growth of huge of a huge renewable energy sector. And also we need to encourage um, our society um, to accept the opportunity of um, the change of global warming. And I say that because as industry does change, there's enormous opportunities and there's enormous jobs growth. In a stagnating, slowly declining industry, that is be that most dangerous place you can be as a worker, as someone who's trying to pay off your mortgage, you're bringing up the kids or helping with the grandkids. Being reliant on a slowly shrinking industry is a dangerous place. What I am sure of is that the green hydrogen and green energy sector and green product sector, without any doubt, will become the largest industry in the world, Dermot. And that means that you are, if, if you can uh, become part of that industry, then you're part of a growing industry. You're part of an industry with an ever-increasing employment critical mass. Um, and we're seeing the job opportunities really start to grow in Western Australia, really start to grow in Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia. Um, and so this is where I would say to every coal worker or fossil fuel worker, we really need your skills. So come and join a sector which is experiencing enormous growth, isn't slowly shrinking, isn't like the frog in a soft, in a slowly boiling pot of water, um, but come and, come and get out of that pot and come and join us in, a, in what will become the world's largest industry. That's a really great note to finish on. Andrew, we're thankful for your time. Um, thanks so much for being here. That was episode four of the Goodwill Hunters Spring series. Join us next week for a conversation on tourism. As borders reopen, how can we travel in a more sustainable way, which benefits local livelihoods without compromising the natural environment? Is it possible? Our guests certainly think so. In the meantime, join the conversation via at GoodwillPod and hashtag Regenerate Australia. See you next week.